talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer Skin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Have you heard the latest? Elon Musk wants to buy Disney World. Nope, I just made that up, but it did get your ire up. Here's Scott Thompson. Oh, oh, man, you cheeky boy. Everybody's ears are spinning. The Mickey ears are going around. What happened? Uh, Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board. Diane and Dave in the newsroom. All right. uh, You know, things are pretty stable today. (laughs) Not a lot of real stuff going on uh, that that already isn't, of course, going on. So in that sense, there's lots of news because there always is uh, when you're coming out of a global pandemic and there's a uh, conflict in the world and all that other sort of stuff. Um, But uh, more sanctions coming out from the Canadian government today. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, Shanghai, just short of a full lockdown. Uh, We'll talk about that and uh, their inability to get COVID-19 under wraps just simply from lack of quality vaccine and uh, hesitancy as well. Uh, Russia cutting off gas to Poland and Bulgaria as the rest of Europe screens for Canadian uh, natural uh, gas and and anyone else who can uh, give it to them. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. Austin Matthews hits the big 60 goal mark record. uh, Records all across the board. So uh, excellent year for the Leafs. Here's hoping. Uh, We'll talk about that coming up a little later on with Radley as well. And SpaceX launching four NASA astronauts to the International Space Station aboard a SpaceX rocket. Boy, that bad Elon Musk, that bad progress. Ah, that guy, we got to get him under wraps before he gets that giant megaphone. Lord knows what he's going to say. Uh, anyway, uh, great news today. And this is, you know, we're certainly hearing more of um, uh, aid and, and such, and certainly sanctions uh, with Ukraine. But many are wondering how much can help and what else we can do uh, in order to uh, to help them uh, fortify themselves and, and, and get through this uh, Russian invasion. And, uh, you know, it's great to see. This is really great to see that... Uh, that uh, Hamilton's stepping up and uh, doing what they can uh, to help out. City Council has voted to provide 50 grand in humanitarian support towards the crisis in Ukraine. Uh, The grant to be funded from tax stabilization reverse, uh, sorry, reserve, uh, which goes towards air and ground transportation costs occurred by uh, Terrace Bulba Ukrainian support. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger says the Hamilton-based nonprofit plans to send humanitarian aid aboard four charter flights this spring. And, of course, lots of people have been asking how they can help. There's more ways on our website at 900CHML.com. But this is good to see because a lot of people are watching this in horror and they they don't know what to do. They want to help in some way. And obviously donating, whether it's through this establishment or through any of the other organizations uh, that you see uh, that are well, of course, back, the Red Cross, what have you, again, official websites as we know them and trust them, um, you know, that's really all we can do. But here's a clip from Mayor Fred Eisenberg. Uh, talking about uh, the need and and the generosity of Hamiltonians. Small effort that we could make beyond what we're going to do as a community in terms of welcoming those that are escaping the the tragic uh, circumstances of Ukraine and are looking for safe haven. 
The amount of money that we're providing here would allow for four shipments of uh, carp through cargo jet, as well as ground transportation when it lands in Poland and needs to get to Ukraine. So there you have it, Mayor Fred Eisenberger on uh, just a small way Hamilton can help. And uh, obviously, as I mentioned, there's uh, a, a list of various organizations, local and international, on our website at 900chml.com, uh, where you can go if you would like to uh, add more help. Uh, as we head into, or as we are in, day 62 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we will talk about that coming up a little more uh, later on in the show. All right. Uh, also, stories that are coming up. Ryerson no more now toronto metropolitan university it's funny uh you know everybody agreed that uh or uh, the students that i saw being interviewed agreed that uh you know it was time for name change but none of them they're not happy with toronto metropolitan university they've sort of gone from one extreme to the other okay let's uh, go from something that's controversial to something that's completely mundane and you know so you know what do you do we'll talk about that coming up a little later on and where does this go does it keep going i mean i certainly understand this certainly get where this is coming from uh but other universities are talking about it where does this go uh do we keep going all the way to trudeau airport in montreal uh at what point do we or do we draw the line we'll talk about that coming up also the stock market uh everybody's com- uh, saying how uh, uh what uh, what do you call it uh <laughs> Twitter, what do you call it? What's that thing called again? Uh, Twitter has their stock plummeted uh, with the news of all of this. Well, it turns out every stock plummeted yesterday because the stock market <laughs> just bottomed out yesterday. Uh, but that's in small print after Tesla is down, SpaceX is down. Uh, but everything was down. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, uh, Mohawk. This is a very cool thing. And how much have you seen this? My goodness. Uh, during the global pandemic, all masking up and, and, you know, having, we had the big, you know, boxes of masks. So, you know, we could replenish them and such. But then we started seeing masks all over the place. Like people just discarding them, just chucking them out. Uh, worse than what the old cigarette butt situation used to be. Uh, so anyway, Mohawk has got a great idea on how to turn them into, Furniture? Why not? We'll talk about that. Some ingenuity uh, when it comes to masking and discarding of them. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on as well. Duran of Cambridge. Duran, what's in your mind? I just wanted to call and uh, express my appreciation for you and CHML and everybody that uh, has put much effort into all the you know, issues at hand. But um, yes, it's been it's quite uh, it's been quite a learning experience for everybody, I think. And um, I just didn't want it to go unnoticed for me. So I. And are you up. talking about anything specific, Duran? Well, I mean, um, this pandemic and how people mm-hmm. have showed their. I feel that people have have. Uh, Grown by showing care and concern about other people that don't don't have the advantages that they do. Very well said, and thank you so much for the call. Feel free to call any time. We'd love to have you. <laughs> Keep at it, Scott. You. Thank you. Appreciate that, Duran from Cambridge. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Ryerson University, no more, now become Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, uh, Where do we go from here? I certainly understand this. I certainly get it. But 
Uh, do we keep going to include things like uh, Trudeau Airport in Montreal? Does it keep going? And where does it stop there? Do we keep moving on? Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, Scott, and glad to be here with you as always. So what are your thoughts? Uh, it's funny how kids are going, yeah, we, we agree that, you know, you should have got rid of Ryerson, but man, Toronto Metropolitan University. So it's like you can't win. They go from something incredibly controversial to, to something incredibly bland. Although, again, I get it. Uh, less less confusion, less, uh, less divisiveness. Uh, but where do we stop with this? Do we keep going, Alyssa? Where do you see this going? I think one of the critical factors here, Scott, is that this was a coordinated effort. Uh, you know, began with something very incendiary with a group that went to extreme. So when they uh, took down uh, Egerton uh, Ryerson's statue, threw paint on it, beheaded him, threw it into Lake Ontario, I believe. You know, these are acts of extremism that nobody expected. Typically, when these things happen, it's by people who yell and scream and then run away when the hard work has to begin. But the hard work did happen, and it was precipitated by an extreme action. But the but to Ryerson's, you know, credit, they decided as an institution, well, who are we now and who are we going forward? Now, mm-hmm. when you change a name, Scott, it's it's a very big deal. And I yeah. have to believe that Ryerson did their due diligence and having their audits and task forces and whatnot. And, you know, I think that you got to look at something and think, okay, well, do we continue battling this and just, you know, you know, plant our feet in the ground and not be moved? Or we move with the times. This is a, consent, a contentious issue. Truth and reconciliation is not going away. Let's just put a stake in the ground and let's do something about it. So, Scott, I think the the deciding factor here was that there was a concerted and persistent effort that would not let go of the issue. So when you ask me, where will it stop? It has to begin somewhere, but it just can't begin. You've got to be ready for the long haul. So, um, so again, where now that it has started, where does it stop, or is that up to the public to decide who's, you know, uh, Ryerson as, a, as opposed to Laurier or including Laurier? Uh, again, I'm looking at a Toronto.com uh, blog right now, and it lists the ten most. Uh, what's hang on? Let me get the title of it for you. Uh, ten Canadian leaders who contributed most to uh, to who contributed to Indigenous oppression, and at the very uh, last of the list is Pierre Trudeau. Uh, for not giving them, uh, for that not giving them their chance to self-govern, uh, ridiculing them, accused of ridiculing, ridiculing them in some way. Uh, so, should is that the next one? Should that be the last one? How do you, you know, decide? I, I mean, what is there a scale that we look at? What is you know really on a scale of one to ten, from worst to not so bad? And what? Do but we these are the questions like? that people and, are asking. They're they're wondering. And, and, and these are the questions we, and, they're asking. And, and not only that, but you know, there isn't a figure in history that doesn't have some sordid nugget of a of a past that they're yeah. dealing with. There isn't one politician. There isn't some uh, figure in history that hasn't made. Um, a stand or taken a stand or made change where they can't be necessarily proud of 100% of things that they have done. You know, do I think that we have to change absolutely everything? I don't know. I don't know if we if, if we have to. Um, and that's why I, I opened this, Scott, with saying it really depends on the concerted effort of people to keep the issue at hand. Because, you know, 
there's worldwide um, crises that happened. You know, I remember the crises in Haiti. Well, after it finished its news run for four days, people start to lose interest. So the fact of the matter is, is that if you want change, you have to be in it for the long run. Where do we stop? I don't know. I remember, you know, in the southern United States, there was a big effort and a lot of slave owner statues came coming down. Well, that's not happening right now. So is that because it's not top of mind? I don't know. So when you're asking me, is there a finish line? I'm going to say to you, not necessarily, but it depends on how people feel about it. And it's, it depends whether they want to go through the long run to commit change. It seems that we're so interested in blaming others instead of taking the responsibility ourselves. It's all these people's fault. It, were, it was Canadians who voted for these people and put them in power. Do Canadians not... Shouldn't Canadians be just as guilty of all of this as everybody else is? I mean, they're the response. They're the reason those leaders are in. Well, 100 percent. So where do you stop? And we do have a blame culture. Again, it makes us feel better. It makes us feel better to blame someone else. Blame the leader of the day. I'm not taking well, that's who we are. And that's a lot of what people do. I mean, we do have a culture now where it's blame, 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 sit down, you know, shout, sit down and then move on to the next and blame, blame, blame. People are starting to get tired of that. And that's why you can't you see the unabated success of the right and the extreme right in what in their actions, such as the motorcycle rally that's coming up, because they're tired of the woke left. They're tired of always having to watch their people and cues. So while it does raise our consciousness, you know, with every action, there's a reaction. With everything that's good, there's something bad about it. So we can't all be perfect. But, you know, I would say that we need to actually, you know, look at our history squarely in the eye, you know, take responsibility for it, and not necessarily always serve to blame people. Well said. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, talking about the change uh, of Ryerson University to Toronto Metropolitan University. We didn't even get to Elon Musk, Alyssa. Next time. Thanks, Alyssa. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots of chatter still about uh, Elon Musk taking over Twitter. And again, I'm, I'm just... Um, I'm kind of surprised that uh, that it's creating the uh, not only I, I certainly understand the curiosity because Elon Musk is, uh, you know, he's a weird genius. He's he, you know, he brought back electric vehicles. He's he just sent four uh, astronauts, four NASA astronauts are on their way to the International Space Station today aboard one of his SpaceX rockets. So, uh, you know, I understand the natural curiosity to someone like this. But is it curiosity or is it fear? Uh, and again, yesterday, the uh, with all the announcement of uh, of him taking over Twitter, uh, the headline says Tesla loses 126 billion in stock amid uh, the uh, or in value rather uh, amid the Musk Twitter deal. Uh, and then way, 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 way down there, you find out that the Nasdaq had its worst uh, day in a couple of years, lowest rate, uh, lowest. Average since December of 2020, so most tech stocks took a bit of a dive yesterday. I'm sure uh, Elon Musk's actions have a bit to do with that, but uh, you don't really hear about that. I'm concerned. I, I, I'm just. I, I'm trying to understand why there is so much excitement about this. Is it uh, or, or or fear? Is it from his freedom of speech uh, spiels, where you know there's, all the rules and regulations are going to be thrown out the window? Although he still has to abide by the law. 
or uh, is it him manipulating the stock market in some way? Let's bring in Daniel Lives, Managing Director of Equity Research with Wedbush Investments in the U.S., and is with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Great to be here. Are you surprised at all the attention this is getting, Daniel? Look, I mean, it's the richest person in the world who you know, many would say is probably the most fouled in the world buying Twitter. So, it, it, you know, the fact that there's so much interest is not in any way a shock. I think it's also the fact that many thought he would not be successful in buying Twitter. And there is a, now a lot of questions about the platform in terms of which way it's going to go. And look, and then when it comes down to it in terms of Tesla, look, Musk, Musk golden child. Remember, the key to everything is Tesla. And, and he leveraged about 20% of his net worth, most of that in Tesla, to buy Twitter. So it, 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 it's really, it's become a Rubik's Cube, and it's really a political firestorm. And that's why we sit where we do. Uh, I can see the curiosity of the genius. Everybody wants to look at somebody who's different. But is it that or is it fear? I think it's a combination. Um, look, Twitter despite all the controversy and all the reach as a social media platform has been a massive underperformer relative to Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and everything else. So, you know, if you look at Twitter just as a platform, you know, and there's a lot of improvement that can happen from an advertising subscription monetization in terms of Musk taking over, look, obviously freedom of speech, you know, that's really the, the key why, you know, he really went after Twitter. And I think now it, it, it almost becomes this sort of lightning rod issue where I do think ultimately the bar's worse than the bite in terms of how it's going to change the platform because, look, he just bet 20% of his network on it. But with that said, he's a polarizing figure, a hero to some, a villain to others, and that's why this has really become such an international story. So how concerned are Tesla shareholders uh, for the reasons you've just said? Well, that, look, at the end of the day, that is the most important or meaningful issue here. Everything that you're talking about, that's really noise. People have threatened that they're going to go off Twitter mm-hmm. or, or ultimately leader. But for a Tesla investor, look, that's the fear because Musk is the key to Tesla. I mean, he's the hearts and lungs. It is where it is because of him. And him ultimately leveraging up Tesla, basically his shares, to buy Twitter, it does put more pressure on Tesla stock. And that's why this has kind of become, you know, especially among the bears, they focused on that yesterday, which is why the stock was down so significantly. And if that continues, look, I think if you look at Twitter stock, there is some uncertainty now that started to creep in. I believe Wall Street does not believe this is a done deal, and I think you see that in the stock. So now there could be some twists and turns ahead in terms of this deal. Everybody uh, seems like they know if they give the megaphone to Elon Musk, the world is going to come to an end for some reason. And uh, and again, I don't, I don't mean, to, mean to be cynical about this, but again, I, I am surprised at the fear in all of this. Um, and, 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 and we obviously know that it wasn't worth a lot before he started, uh, and lots are trying to consider what he may do. 
Could it be that he's got something in his back pocket that nobody's even thought of yet, and he's going to take it in a completely different direction or do something to it, and everybody would go, oh, man, this is great. Well, I mean, to that point, I mean, PayPal, Tesla, and SpaceX, I'd say those are three pretty successful companies. Yeah. So it just speaks to, you know, he's had the golden touch, right? And it's one where when it comes to Twitter as a platform, it's been such an underperformer that there's so much room in terms of whether it's subscription, monetizing, engagement, that ultimately the platform can massively change from where it is today, and not necessarily in a bad way. In terms of on the freedom of speech, does it let Trump back the polarizing issues? He didn't, and this is just important, like, he didn't bet 20% of his net worth just for freedom of speech. I mean, the point is yeah, there's yeah. a business model behind, and that's an important dynamic. And the truth is here, Daniel, no one has any idea what he's going to do, but they all have an opinion. But I've seen it for decades, knowing Musk covering Tesla. You know, many times back was against the wall. And ultimately, remember, remember many thought Tesla was going to fail. SpaceX yeah. was going to fail. And here it is, revolutionized electric vehicles as well as space program. Do you think this is a good buy for Elon Musk, Twitter? Oh, in terms of as a good buy, I think if you're drinking a lot of wine, whiskey, Jägermeister, <laughs> then you'd think maybe it's a good, I mean, this is, as in terms of the price that he's paying, it's a massive head scratcher. I mean, this is not, I mean, he's basically trading caviar for $2 pretzel in terms of his shares of Tesla for Twitter. But when you're the richest person in the world, you're worth $275 billion, you can do that. But that's, that's why this continues. When you wonder why there's still uncertainty about the deal, it's because of that dynamic. Because they wonder once you go under the hood of Twitter, do the due diligence, they report earnings tomorrow, does ultimately he get cold feet? That's why the stock in terms of Twitter is trading at a discount and the street starts to view this as maybe some uncertainty. Daniel Ives with us, Managing Director of Equity Research with Wedbush Investments out of the U.S., talking about Elon Musk and Twitter. Daniel, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. I remember talking about this a few times, uh, especially earlier on in the pandemic. Remember, uh, let's say, waves one, two, three, somewhere along there. And uh, I, I, rem- I think I was going to the dentist when, when we were allowed to go back into the dentist office. And I remember, uh, you know, walking along Main Street in, in the Hammer and, and thinking like, man, there's like masks everywhere. There's, you know, all along the side of the road. And, you know, just as you would see trash, whether it's, uh, you know, the old days, cigarette butts or uh, candy wrappers or or coffee cups or what have you, that blended in with all of this now is an added layer of masks. And we all certainly know how important that was uh, during the global pandemic and, and continues to be. And but what do we do moving forward? And, and, and the reason I brought it up way back when was to, just to say to people, hey, like uh, when you're finished, throw them in the in the garbage. Like nobody wants, especially something like that lying around. So that being said, though, even if you throw, throw them in the garbage, where do they end up? They end up in a landfill. And in a time when we're trying to reduce all of that stuff, you can imagine how many masks there must be uh floating around out there uh and now mohawk college is working on something what can be done with these how about turning them into products 
Furniture. Uh, let's bring in Allison Maxted, Manager of Sustainability at Mohawk College, and is with us now. Allison, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. So tell us what you're working. Tell us what you're working on here. Yeah. So um, about a year ago, um, we actually uh, we run an annual campaign called the SIF Idea Bank campaign, where we invite students to submit ideas for campus sustainability. And so we ran one uh, virtually during the pandemic, uh, and we had a student submit an idea for uh, campus mass recycling. Um, and of course, we were all feeling the same way that you just described about you know seeing seeing all the masks out in nature and just adding to the waste problem that we already had. And even in the, in the best case scenario, they were ending up in landfill. Um, and so we were, at, when the students suggested this idea and we looked into um, what programs might exist to deal with this, we were really excited to uh, discover a company called TerraCycle um, that does uh, recycling of hard to recycle items that aren't uh, typically recycled in our curbside pickup. So uh, we've been working with them for uh, just just about a year now. To we've um, we ordered these prepaid uh, zero waste boxes. We we place them at the college exit, and we've been encouraging our staff and students to put their masks in these boxes. Um, our awesome housekeeping team um, ships them back to TerraCycle when they're filled up uh, for processing to be turned into useful items. Um, and through the program, we've been able to divert over uh, 260,000 masks from the landfill so far, which we know is a, a drop in the bucket for, you know, the planet's waste problem, but it's a response that we thought was important, an example of how we can start. And imagine if everyone did it. Uh, so how recyclable or non-recyclable are the ma- are these masks? How difficult is this to, to, to process? Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of a depressing statistic that only about 9% of uh, plastics are actually recycled. And it's not so much because they can't physically be recycled, it's just because the economics are not there. The cost uh, of what money can be made off the items that they're turned into um, doesn't match up with the cost to recycle the items. So that's why this program uh, from TerraCycle helps with that because these boxes are prepaid. So uh, the college has actually invested in covering uh, some of the added recycling costs for these difficult to recycle masks. So what happens to the masks once they get sent there? What do they, what happens to them? What they become, what do they become? Yeah. So they're kind of separated into three parts. So the, the the main mask is made of polyethylene and that's melted and pelletized and resold into plastics like outdoor decking and outdoor furniture. And the nose wire is easiest to recycle. That just gets removed and it's recycled like any other metal recycling. And the ear straps are rubber, so those are removed and they're pelletized and they're used in applications like the uh, rubberized playground surfacing that you see in the parks. Wow. Uh, so what's the response been like from students and your ability to get them to drop masks into those boxes? Yeah, I mean, it's been very good. Um, it was a student, as I said, it was a student-driven initiative. Um, and this is something that waste is probably the top uh, sustainability kind of concern, waste and climate change among our students. So um, they're definitely ha- happy to participate. And uh, we we made sure that we place them in at all the exits uh, and convenient locations on campus. Uh, so the uptake's been very good. And how long is this going to go on for, Allison? 
Um, so we don't have any plans to end the program at this time. We're still encouraging masking on our campus mm-hmm. um, and providing uh, masks for those who need them. So as long as we do that, we'll be providing this program, and we'll just keep uh, reassessing it as we move forward. And sorry, give us that number again about how many masks roughly you've collected or how many you've kept out of landfill. Mm-hmm. So it's a 260,000, so about a quarter of a million masks so far. And that's in what period of time? In just under a year. Wow, that's incredible. Good for you. Uh, well, we certainly see the problem everywhere we go because uh, just like there is litter, especially around springtime when people have just been chucking stuff and nobody's really gotten out to clean anything up yet, uh, masks are uh, are becoming a problem with litter. So here's a great example of Mohawk uh, making something out of this. Allison Maxted with us, Manager of Sustainability at Mohawk and taking old masks and recycling them. Allison, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with this moving forward. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. For years, I think we've neglected Canada's healthcare system because we've been so busy patting ourselves on the back saying how great it is until, of course, it gets stretched to uh, its limits like uh, everybody has been during a uh, global pandemic. And obviously, during this uh, global pandemic, uh, we've seen the holes and heard finally the calls of healthcare workers who've been screaming for decades. Uh, that we need to rejig a funding formula and make sure that uh, we can get the provinces what they need because every single province across the country is experiencing, and that's another thing we've discovered with COVID, is experiencing the exact same thing, uh, the exact same shortfalls. Uh, now, uh, and again, another issue we were experiencing, uh, just like wait times in, in, in hallway medicine and such, a shortage of family doctors long before uh, COVID-19. Lots coming out recently in regard to how students who are getting into medicine are not chasing the family physician occupation. The Ontario College of Family Physicians has recently launched their Life Without a Doctor campaign, which offers both information and solutions uh, to uh, the inequitable access to a family doctor. To talk about all of this, Liz Muga is with us, president of the Ontario College of Family Physicians, and here now. Liz, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Scott. And yes, I am well. I've heard uh, anecdotally and, and even read very much recently that uh, there's no shortage of kids or students that want, I shouldn't say kids, students that want to get into medicine and such and the healthcare industry, specific, specifically moving towards doctor and such, but not necessarily becoming family physicians or family doctors, which is where there is a great need. Why is that? Why are students not choosing this path? Yeah, so, you know, it really is a worrisome trend. And, you know, just to give you some data to have a bit of a perspective on it, when we look at medical students and what they're choosing in terms of their residency, so that's where you decide, am I going to be a family doctor or I'm going to be a specialist? You know, the hope is we have about 50% that pick family medicine. And that's what we know we need, you know, to, to fill the need in the community. And across Canada this year, there were 225 unfilled spots in family medicine. And if we compare that to, you know, not even 10 years ago, 2014, we had about 100 unfilled spots. So we've more than doubled the number of uh, open spots in family medicine. So that means the students just, they're not picking family medicine as their career choice. And we know it's not about... um, you know, the, the, the value of the work that we do. I mean, I think we still have medical students who are saying like, it's, it's 
fun and meaningful and um, mm -hmm. really fulfilling to think about being the beginning, the middle and the end of somebody's healthcare journey. But when they look out at what does it look like to actually practice right now as a family doctor, it's not seeming like a very attractive choice. They are seeing that family doctors are burnt out. They're seeing all the paperwork that we're doing, the less amount of time that we have to really be face-to-face -face with our patients. And so for all those reasons, I think medical students are turning away from that choice, even when you know, they could see in a, in a different circumstance that that's the kind of work that they wanna do, but just not the way it's being done right now. How did we get here? Because it wasn't yeah. so long ago, and I remember before the pandemic, you know, we've yeah. got lots of concern of healthcare workers, but not really much concern about doctors. And, and they were saying, you know, uh, this is like a small business we're trying to run here, and it's not worth our value to do so. And now all of a sudden we're screaming they're not there. Yeah, so it's true that this has been a long time in coming. We've had decades of underfunding into the whole primary care system, which is all the work that happens in the community with family doctors and, and nurse practitioners. And um, that has, you know, was there long before the pandemic. And then, you know, you stress the system mm -hmm. and it just can't bear the, the weight anymore. And it's, it's really worrisome. I mean, I see my colleagues right now experiencing high levels of burnout, about one in four family doctors, higher severe levels of burnout. One in five family doctors are saying, we're going to retire in the next yeah. five years. And, you know, those are, um, you know, really worrisome for Ontarians. And like, that's why as a college, we really thought we need to go out to the public about this because having a family doctor is so critical for keeping you healthy. Like your, your relationship with that person over the course of your life is so critical and losing that um, we know isn't good for the patient. It's also really expensive for the healthcare system because what happens if you don't have a family doctor is you end yeah. up in the emergency department, let's mm -hmm. say, or hospitalized. And um, so we really wanted the public to know and to join with us in a call to all the political parties. You know, right now we're facing an election to to make sure that this is, you know, on the table for all the parties to think about. Um, mm hmm. We all know that provincial or healthcare is a provincial issue, but obviously COVID-19 and the global pandemic has exposed this. Uh, Premier Horgan, uh, NDP Premier out in uh, British Columbia, has been leading the charge, trying to get the funding model changed. Every single province across the country will tell you the exact same thing. Uh, even when we were talking about dental care, I was talking to the head of the Canadian Dental Association, and they were saying, anyway, we can get this done. It's great, but the provinces have the tools they need. The problem is they don't have all of the funding. So I, I know that we're attacking this at the provincial level, but are, are, are all of these organizations getting together at a federal level and trying to come out uh, uh, with a solution, which is really at the root of all of this problem? And, and that is the lack of funding. I mean, it, it's a very, healthcare is the most expensive thing a government has. Is there any way we can attack this uh, with all of the provinces at a federal level to at least start the discussion with a new template? Yeah, so you bet. I mean, we're definitely in touch with each other right across the province as um, uh, associations, family doctor associations and the colleges of family doctors. So we're uh, united in this call for additional funding to our sector and to our profession. Um, I, I will say that I think that it is um, also about not necessarily just more money. It's about where we're spending it and yeah. realizing that, in fact, if you shift money into primary care, into family doctor's offices, 
um, so that we can say, for example, all of us have access to uh, mental health supports right there in our clinic, right? And access to those resources that we need for our patients. I mean, that is going to actually benefit all of the system. So as I said, it shifts then the load away from the mm -hmm. emergency departments and the hospitals and the need for specialist care if you can give it, so to speak, upstream into the family doctor offices where we can uh, provide that directly to our patients. So Yes, this is a national issue for sure. And the solutions are very common across all the provinces. Um, and, and I think it takes some political will uh, to really say, look, this is um, hospitals are really important. Absolutely. But if we want to prevent hospitalizations and really yeah. deal with hallway mm. medicine, let's take a look at shifting some funding back into the community and into our um, family practices. Great point. And here's hoping uh, as we exit a global pandemic, hopefully, that uh, the attention still is focused on the weaknesses that we experienced during this pandemic as our healthcare industry does its very best with limited resources. Liz Muga with us, president of the Ontario College of Family Physicians. Liz, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck. A pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Bye, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You hear this term? I just, I, this is new to me. Petro-dictatorship. Petro-dictatorship. Uh, and this is referring to Russia, who's cut off gas and oil supplies to Poland and Bulgaria. Uh, because they will not buy in uh, rubles as opposed to uh, any other form of currency, including U.S. dollars. Uh, another example of how Russia, some are calling blackmailing Europe and the rest of the world uh, by holding back their energy. Uh, interesting, uh, and this is the reason we're bringing Dan McTagg on, interesting headlines I wanted to ask him about. Uh, the first one in the Financial Post, uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine crisis reveals the hard truth that the world isn't ready for the energy transition. Uh, uh, from the CBC, oil and gas will be around a lot longer uh, than some think, despite climate change goals. And, you know, whenever we, Dan and I come on to talk about this, we're deemed as fossil fuel burning pigs. I don't think anybody's denying that something has to be done here. Our footprint has to be shrunk and we have to uh, ease off burning fossil fuels as quickly as we can. But this isn't happening overnight. And despite 30 years of talking about it, we're just not there yet. And what's needed here, I believe, is all hands on deck every form of energy we can use and we can get our hands on at this point. And of course, moving towards something that is renewable, but to think we can just shut off one at the expense of the other is, uh, I'm sorry, is in, in the world of Ukraine and Russia, completely unrealistic and this has proven it let's bring in dan mctagg president of canadians for affordable energy former liberal mp he's with us now dan thanks for the time i hope you're well i am and uh, thanks for having me and hey cbc admits that that's wonderful isn't that an, that's an amazing guess now mind you they're quoting the rbc in that Sarah. but that's no the, but that's but that's the headline <laughs> are we seeing a, to them <laughs> are we, i'm thinking that are we seeing a shift here are we seeing a blast of reality we're all trying to get to the same place it's just the way to get there that we seem to be arguing at uh, arguing about and it's the extremists that it's like either one thing or the other are we finally realizing that this is all hands on deck until we get a handle on this 
Yeah, energy diversity is the key, and Canada's had the key for a long time. It's just up to our political leaders to clue into the fact that we've had this. Uh, you and I have talked about this before. We've choreographed and said this is going to happen. No one believed us, or at least very few did, and thought that uh, the comments that I've been making over the past three or four years were heretical. I mean, uh, you know, the fact is that uh, we now find ourselves in the unenviable position of having second-guessed the most important, crucial uh, form of energy and uh, denigrated this, uh, trivialized it, thought nothing of it, attacked it, uh, have a campaign of divestment around it and public policies designed to choke it off. And at the same time, now we are, I think, you know, realizing that uh, we've gone down this path uh, that has now created not energy and security, but now global security on a scale that we have never in this generation seen. So, for the old, those of us who might be a few years older, uh, had had some experience. Uh, this is nothing like the Cold War. It is worse because we now have an active, you know, uh, engagement, a war in Eastern Europe. We have. Uh, uh, you mentioned at the beginning uh, people referring to, uh, you know, a petro dictatorship. I think it is about green ignorance and people who have not considered the ramifications of what they're demanding. If in a perfect world we could displace oil and gas and the importance of pivotal role they play to a lesser extent coal, we would uh, we would have already done that already. Canada would have been, <clears throat> excuse me, Canada would have been a leader in that regard. Uh, but instead, we have allowed ourselves to be conned, bamboozled, uh, you know, indoctrinated with the idea that, yes, we're bad, and yes, there's better alternatives, and they're simply not there. And worse, their pursuit over 30 years in places like Europe to the cost of trillions of dollars have yielded a very insecure world in which uh, uh, inflation, in which uh, financial instability and now uh, a significant war that could lead to a much greater conflagration uh, is uh, is very much at hand. So I think it's time for a reset and uh, to celebrate energy diversity, which is what Canada is all about. And none of them should be ever subsidized, not to the extent that, you know, uh, we, we don't subsidize oil companies in this country. We shouldn't be subsidizing auto manufacturers. And we wait sure a sec, but wait should a sec, be. Wait a sec, Dan. Yeah. Uh, all the environmentalists will tell you that all the energy is subsidized, the energy industry. Yeah, well, they're in full of country. hops because that energy that industry produces 27 billion bucks in net revenues to the federal, provincial, municipal governments. It probably also pays for some of their green grifting because without a federal government giving them grants to go out and spew their nonsense, which is leading us into painting us into this corner. Uh, you know, they wouldn't have a job either. Uh, the reality is, I, if I were prime minister tomorrow, I cut off every grant to every green group in this government. And I would say, let's look at who's making money for this country. Let's look at who's investing in green technology. And it'll be, oh, hang on a second, the oil industry. And I'm not here to, 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 to uh, praise them, but I'm not here to allow anyone else to uh, continue to kick sand in the very industry that is uh, very much at the heart of paying for your hospital, my roads, my education, and our government's ability to make affordable, not just affordable energy, but decisions on security of the public. And make no mistake, uh, Scott, these folks that go out there and say this, uh, I was on the industry, I was on the environment committee just a couple of weeks ago. They couldn't damn well define what a subsidy to the oil industry was. If it's a subsidy is a, is a tax write-off available to any other industry, then how the hell is that a subsidy? And the reality is that they can't define it. They don't know it, but they are quick on grifting. They're quick on looking for opportunities to make their own justification to their own existence. I simply say this, if you, and this is from Jean Chrétien when we had difficult financial times in the 1990s and he had to wrestle, wrestle down that major debt. He said, if your organization 
expects the government to pay them out, to criticize the government, find another means because you're cut off. And he said this to the National Action Committee on the status of women. He said it to a number of other, uh, you know, uh, posers and other groups out there who thought they were the cat's meow. He said, if you think it's important, get the Canadian public to fund you. It's time for the government to stop funding organizations like this. And I think we'll get real. But the fact is, I think right now, Scott, we're getting to a point where the world now realizes they can't afford green nonsense and they certainly can't afford hurting consumers in the way we're seeing hydro rates go through the roof, energy like gasoline, and now diesel prices hitting all-time records and hurting uh, not just uh, those who need it for transportation and to make our economy run, but now people trying to line up to uh, make hands meet when it comes to their food bill. Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, speaking of energy diversity. Uh, interesting term. Thanks, Dan. Be well. Hey, thanks, Scott. Talk to you soon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, we were talking like, over two years. We've been involved in a global pandemic. Uh, a good per- a portion of, uh, of the, of the uh, workforce still working from home. Many were talking about in the last year as they slowly went back, uh, hybrid models of work and ju- uh, juggling daycare and, and stresses of home life and, and work life and such. And it seemed that all the discussions for the last year anyway, uh, as we've uh, slowly talked about going back or have gone back, is the flexibility in, in giving employees uh, the right to do this, that, or the other, or, or incorporate some of the uh, obviously uh, uh, procedures that they have incorporated by working from home. Well, now that's kind of changed, and employees are looking for more than just flexibility. And the Financial Post headline says it all. Post haste, emboldened workers are pushing for higher paychecks as inflation soars. Salary hikes replace flexibility as the main reason driving people to quit their jobs, uh, so says a recent survey. And to talk more about all of this, Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Hi, Ian. Thanks for taking the time. Hope you're well. Yes, uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Scott. So uh, when we were chatting about this for the last couple of years, it's all been about uh, flexibility and the work-life balance, uh, I think largely because many thought when we all took off home that uh, we'd all be, you know, screwing the pooch, as my wife would say. Uh, but really, productivity's gone up and people are burned out because they're working way too much. Now the discussion has, has shifted from flexibility and hybrid work to now show us the money. What are your thoughts? Um, Scott, it doesn't surprise me, and and I'm not trying to sound sage or anything. I mean, <laughs> I've believed all my life that, you know, each of us are self-interested. I know that's not very, you know, fashionable for progressive people who think that, you know, we're sort of these otherworldly spiritual people. But, um, you know, I worked in a bank for nine years, and um, when you're, I've always said when you're dealing with money, you see the self-interest in people come out. This is not a criticism. This is not a crime. Of course, when you're going to the bank, you want to obtain the lowest interest rate possible. You want the best terms possible. And if you say, ah, that's his banking, well, the way I like to also put it in the university, I've never, ever met a person anywhere, not in government, not in business, not in, in the university, who says, I want a pay cut. I'm not paid. I'm paid too much. I'm not worth this much. I've never met such a person. And so what I'm trying to say is, and there's nothing wrong with self-interest. People, that, that's the, the essence of the human condition. And so with inflation climbing as it has done, and we've seen commodity prices going through the roof, especially gas and, and energy costs for our house, 
I thought it was just it was just a no-brainer that people were going to shift to wages because to try to play catch-up, which is perfectly rational, perfectly uh, comprehensible. During the pandemic, wages were, you know, inflation was relatively low, it was very low, and, and wages were flatlined. And, and so the one thing you could did have some control over was the, the work conditions. In other words, did mm-hmm. you have to go downtown uh, to work in the tall high-rise building where you were maybe going to get COVID, or did you have the um, uh, uh, power, the bargaining power, to demand that you will be allowed to work home? That made sense in that context at that time during the COVID pandemic. But now we're leaving the pandemic, and now we're experiencing um, uh, inflation moving up very quickly, and I think it was inevitable that people were going to shift their concern from the workplace conditions now that COVID is coming to an end, or I think it's over. And, and, and now that we're experiencing this rising inflation, it was inevitable that people were going to focus much more on wages because you still, you know, you're getting an increase in wage because you've got to pay for your groceries. You've got to pay for your rent. And, and so I, I, I was not at all surprised by this study that just came out. I think it was, as I said, I think it was inevitable. And if you've been off for two years and now you're going back, gas is way more than what it was. Now you got to pay for yeah. insurance because it's uh, you're driving your car uh, more than occasionally. Uh, not to mention the mental health or the commute. So it's actually costing you money to go back to work now, considering where inflation is. Uh, do you think employees will want money in order to go back? Uh, I would not be at all surprised if the labor market start to evolve in that way. That is to say, um, employees may say, look, um, I'm willing to accept somewhat less um, uh, for wor- if I don't have to go to work every day. Or instead of putting it that way, they may say, yeah. I need a premium. I need above and beyond the baseline paycheck. If you expect me to go downtown every day and I'm out in Pickering or Mississauga and you want me to shop in downtown Toronto, well, then you're going to have to pay me a premium because it takes time and money to go to work and of course you got to buy your lunch out there and you got to buy work clothes and and it is more expensive to go to work and very quickly scott there was a wonderful study done at statscan by a very distinguished statistician he just retired he was there 35 years and and what he did was he studied um what do people need in retirement you can say what's that got to do with this well people that live in retirement don't go to work every day anymore so what he did was he estimated the cost savings of not going to work, not buying lunch downtown, mm-hmm. not buying uh, suits, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, work clothes, and the commuting costs. And he, so he was debunking the myth that you need 80% of your salary when you retire because he said your costs go down very, very dramatically. Well, this is just as true for the person who's staying home, working at home, um, uh, on a hybrid work relationship uh, uh, situation. So in other words, you don't need as much money, or to put it another way, you should be demanding. Anyone out there in Radio Land, if you're being told to go back to work, it's going to cost you a lot more money to go back to work because commuting costs money. Lunches downtown cost money. That coffee, uh, cup of coffee at Starbucks is 5 bucks a hit, and you've got to buy clothes. Staying and working at home is much cheaper. It's 20 30% of your, of your, of your gross uh, paycheck. Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Flexibility no longer top of mind for workers. Show me the money. Ian, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Bye. 
We know the census has come out today, and, you know, there really isn't much here that we didn't already kind of project and we haven't been projecting for the last couple of decades, um, and that is that we are getting older. Aging populations are and, and, and gender identity are among the big takeaways from uh, the census that has just come out, including uh, the aging population and where the baby boomers are at this stage. How does this affect things moving forward, especially when we're talking uh, about elections and a post-pandemic world and the big focus now on things like health care, housing, and, of course, employment. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, Scott. So nothing here, Henry, that we didn't really already know. We knew that this was coming, and we're going to see more and more um, of this as time goes by. What is going to be the impact on, you know, obviously health care, the need for that is going to go up. But what about employment? Uh, employment, there's certain kind of jobs that we're going to have to have, and they're going to be related to what's happening, uh, you know, in these in this big democrat uh, demographic uh, wave of the elderly. Uh, just think the big, I think the big grew the big uh, takeaway here is the the baby boomers now. The front edge of that is about 76 years of age. Okay, within four years, they're going to be hitting 80. And what is going to happen? We're going to need old-age uh, facilities. We're going to need more nursing homes, better home care. And, and we're going to need the personal support workers. We're going to be the nurses. And you had you know, someone a little while ago talking about primary care, primary medical care. That's mm-hmm. what we're going to need. And it's, it's going to hit us in about four years like a tidal wave. So, uh, obviously, the boomers are already starting to retire, as you said, uh, yeah. into their mid-70s at this point. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously, health care is going to be a massive issue. And when you think about what we've gone through yeah. uh, with the post-pandemic, we're in a pandemic world, rather, um, where do you think this debate's going to go? Because it seems that even the uh, discussion about fixing Canada's health care system has kind of fallen by the wayside now that we're uh, moving forward, it appears. Yeah, but we're going to have to put more into it. Do we have enough hospital space? I think we don't. I mean, look at what happened in this pandemic. Imagine when when the, we have the baby boomers who need are going to need a lot more hos- things being done in the hospital space. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things people need, you know, when they hit about 80. they got to make sure their eyes are done with cataract surgery. They have hip and, and, um, and knee replacements. There's all sorts of things you do to keep people healthy in, the, in their 80s. And so, but this wave, as I said, is basically in the late, is in the 70s now. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, you know, who, who were in this, or in this general area, and they say, well, the 70s are pretty good. You know, people, you yeah. know, can do what they want. They're mobile enough. They can go out to theaters and restaurants and, you know, go on travels and, and things like that. But then by the time they're hitting the 80s, they got yeah. health problems that have to be dealt with so they can do the normal things in life like walk around, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. uh, and stand up and, and go to, you know, and to go into uh, places. And also, as I said, they're, they're, they start thinking about going into uh, congregate settings for the elderly, whether it's an old age home or a nursing home or what have you. Or if they try to stay home, they, you have to have nursing care. So you, you've got to make sure you have the people for that. Uh, we may focus on the money, but the question is, where are these personal support workers going to come from? Where are these nurses going to come from and, and the doctors? And essentially, the federal government has got to ensure 
that, you know, we've, they have to start bringing in people who are relatively young, late teenagers, people in their 20s, people who are willing, who, who are likely to go into these, you know, jobs, certainly nurses, uh, but even person, uh, PSWs, personal support workers, they may not, the personal support workers may not stay there in that job all their life, but we're going to need them, you know, in their, uh, when they're relatively young to take care of all these elderly people who are going to need help. And obviously, we're already talking about a shortage of healthcare workers, as we are a shortage of workers pretty much in every industry. How is this going to affect employment? We've got a record low unemployment rate right now. Yeah. Uh, these people are going to start retiring if they're not already. Do we? Will we have enough workers? That's right. Immigration is the key. We, I mean, we Canada has prospered in various ways with by immigration, mm-hmm. and I mean, a lot of people. Well, the Americans have more of a problem with this because they worry about the cultural aspects of bringing in people. But, I mean, if you go into the U.S., I mean, who's taking care of the elderly Americans? It's it's the Mexicans. It's the Hispanics coming yeah. in. <laughs> they, and we, but we take in normally people, you know, we have a more rational system. But we have generally taken in a lot of people o- over the years. And Canada is an immigration nation, and we, we're going to need a lot of these younger people to take care of the older people who essentially are living longer and are are going to need help. And you bring up a valid point. When you see the older, the older baby boomers are in their mid-70s, late-70s right. at this point, right. this is going to start being a problem relatively quickly. That's right. Four years from now, the, the uh, leading edge hits 80. And so they're, you know, and then at that point, you're going to start, people are going to need a lot more medical care when they hit 80. Then, you know, a lot of people, we have a lot of 70, you know, healthy 70-year-olds but 80s, uh, even if you are going to, you know, live another 10 or 15 years, you start. There's a lot of medical procedures you have to have if you're going to have a normal life, and I, I mentioned a number of, number of, number of them before. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. The census data confirming we are aging. Are we ready for it? Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We remember talking about China at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic in Wuhan and where this all originated in the wet food market and such. Uh, And then, of course, uh, the virus spread across the world and and the rest is history, as they say. Uh, Many thought that that China would really get a hold of this and and be the leader in controlling it and and coming up with uh, uh, therapy and such for it. And the direction China took was to basically just zero tolerance, zero strategy, which means just lock everybody up as soon as there is a case of it. Um, But now we're seeing that uh, the vaccine is not very effective that they've come up with. And uh, as well, there's some hesitancy there. So when we question whether the Chinese Communist Party is a superpower, uh, you got to question where they are with all of this as the rest of the world opens up and China is locking back down. Let's bring in Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at the McDonald laurie Institute and is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. It's good to speak with you again, Scott. 
We've talked about this before, Charles, and, and you know we've revealed it's the vaccine and some hesitancy. Their elderly population, uh, a lot of them are not even vaccinated. I think it's sitting around 50% or so, which is stunning when you consider the vaccination rates uh, in Canada and such. And, and like I, I mentioned, a vaccine that doesn't seem to be as valuable uh, when it comes to the new variants such as Omicron and such. Are you surprised that, that uh, China was not able to develop a better vaccine? I mean, again, we're talking super superpower it, it they've seemed to have dropped the ball here yeah and i mean they had more time because they were aware of the uh, of the pandemic before we were of course but they have not developed the um, mrna vaccines which are you know relatively effective against omicron particularly if you get boosted i've had four four in uh, uh vaccination so far and i'm feeling pretty good about it but uh, you know they haven't developed that but because of their nationalistic pride, while China could afford to import the Pfizer or Moderna effective vaccines, they're refusing to do so. So they're really in a difficult situation there where if the virus um, you know, is allowed to spread, it will spread like wildfire and you'll see a lot of tragic uh, deaths, particularly as you say, of seniors uh, from this uh, BA.2 variants. So, you know, they, their answer has been to essentially imprison people in their apartments in the city of Shanghai, for starters, for now four weeks. You know, it's on March 28th, about three hours before 5 a.m., the Shanghai government announced a four-day lockdown um, where people would be confined to their apartments and and food would be brought to them by couriers. That hmm. has expanded into, in most of this city of 26 million, to four weeks. And people are complaining that they're not getting food deliveries. You know, they scramble to order the food. And when the food comes, it's often um, uh, rotten or, you know, un- un- uneatable. So this is a desperate, desperate situation for people. They can't go outside. They can't get their prescriptions refilled. They can't get to hospital if they need to because of some non-Omicron-related uh, uh, disease. And if they show even non-symptomatic Omicron, they're taken to um, a special uh, temporary holding facilities, which uh, you know don't have running water. They can't shower, and um, and uh, are you know clearly vectors for spread of the disease. So. It really is a tragic, tragic situation. And now, of course, the the virus is spreading to other cities, and it looks like we'll be seeing a similar sort of response in the capital, Beijing, a city of 21 million. So, you you know, the Chinese Communist Party, I think because of their hubris of their national pride, are just not able to adjust their their approach to Omicron to, to stave off a disaster and enormous disruption to the economy as uh, large numbers of people are unable to get to work. We remember at the beginning of this uh, pandemic and the search for a vaccine, and of course how much Canada was behind the rest of the world in all of this, uh, and we were working on a, a, a vaccine with CanSino out of China, and then all of a sudden the Chinese Communist Party said, no more information for you, and they basically stole what we had and then developed a vaccine. Is this that vaccine? Yeah, they, they have uh, Sinovac, Sinopharm, and the CanSino. The CanSino they've been sending largely abroad, but none of those three are as effective as our uh, Moderna and Pfizer. They so even if we had signed a deal, even if we had signed uh, a deal for this, technology. So, even I mean, if we had we signed a deal for this, Charles, would it have been any good? Not getting the CanSino. 
That's that. Sorry, that was my next question. I was talking over there. I apologize for that. So it, it was good that we didn't end up getting this deal with China. It was a substandard vaccine. Well, it turns out to have been. Yeah, I mean, you know, it 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 was effective against the earlier variant, um, but uh, or to some extent, not as effective as the Pfizer or Moderna. But it's not at all effective against the uh, Omicron variant, unfortunately. It's the older technology, not the RMNA or uh, mRNA. Yeah. Uh, why? Why? And I was my, one of my questions was why don't they just uh, call up Pfizer and get a load? You said that you know uh, Pride won't let them do that. Well, why not just copy it like they do everything else? Apparently, they just can't produce it. You know, it's the the technology is too advanced for them to be able to duplicate. You know, I mean, this is, uh, you know, things like um, advanced computer chips. China's also not been able to to produce them on their own and are dependent on the Taiwan and uh, South Korean imports. So, you know, it seems that it's not uh, it's not as easy to uh, to reproduce an mRNA vaccine as a as I guess a Rolex watch or a or a, a Gucci bag. <laughs> you see a lot of uh, duplicated in China and has to be a bit flippant about it, but it's tragic because they could readily afford to import that stuff. There is supply and they could be saving enormous numbers of lives if they would simply give up on, on the, on the pretense that the Chinese system in addressing the, the pandemic is superior to that of the West and that the Chinese vaccines are superior to their Western counterparts. It's just not true. We uh, all remember that this started in Wuhan and then, of course, went around the world. Um, so are you concerned or are epidemiologists concerned that with this lack of being able to treat it in their own country, that this will somehow start another phase of this? Absolutely. I mean, that's the, you know, the consensus of the doctors is that the whole world has to be properly vaccinated to to bring this thing to an end. And if you have a country like China, which is, you know, almost a quarter of humanity um, not um, using effective vaccines, then we have a problem there because, you know, we, we may be able to deal with a lot of other uh, third world countries that have low vaccination rates. But if China simply refuses to allow those effective vaccines to come into China, then, you know, then the, the variants will magnify and we cannot you know, lock China off from the rest of the world. It's bound to bleed out. So it, the whole thing is, is, you know, tragic and just due to politics. If the Chinese government would just accept reality and, you know, nobody is, uh, nobody is, is holding the Chinese Communist Party to account because they can't develop effective vaccines. You know, this is a global human health issue and uh, we ought to all be working together to address it, not not uh, working at cross purposes, which is what the Chinese Communist Party is unfortunately doing. Uh, the uh, Chinese Communist Party in Beijing and Shanghai moving backwards and going back into lockouts as a result of inferior vaccine. Charles Burton with a senior fellow, the Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad, McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Keep away from pandemics. <laughs> we will try. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing fine. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm going to ask you right off the top, because the reason of this uh, whole exercise here is to promote who is coming up on your show, yet I think we have failed to do that every single time we have chatted because we get distracted. So, um, yes, we. Uh... if you want to promote your show, you can do it right now. 
Well, I'm trying to think now what's coming up on my show. Um, <laughs> Sorry. You, you, then I, let's I talk about Elon someone, Musk. Uh, we are well. We all we'll get to that. No, I, I do have uh, I do have stuff coming up. Obviously, one of the things we're going to talk about the CFL today came out with a bunch of new rules. I mean, you'll notice over the last number of years, it's been talked about a lot. Yeah. The scoring is down and excitement is down. So they are coming up with a bunch of new gimmicks and gadgets. And my personal favorite, which I've actually talked about this before, is a good idea. So I can't knock it now. I think it's a good in, a good thing to try. You're allowed to have two quarterbacks on the field at once. How does this work? Well, you could work it however you want to work it, but I've always envisioned it that you, your center, who's going to snap the ball, you put the quarterbacks either a little bit to the left or the right, and then the other team who's lining up to come after the pocket has no idea which side the ball is going to go to. I think I think there's lots of opportunities here. Wow. For some, so in other words, you, know, you use you use your first and second string quarterback, or now you've got another one, two. You could have two potentially. It could be a gadget play. It could be something you bring in occasionally. I just think that. The CFL has always been, well, until recently, has always been the league where you try stuff and where you're creative and where the offenses have a chance to do wild things. Well, here you go. This That's is interesting. The wildest of all. Wow. And, you know, because normally the discussion is three downs versus four downs. Yep. Yep. Well, the four down thing, which had been in discussion, that seemed to get by the wayside. No mention of it at all in the release today. Don't you uh, think that will slow the game down? Because I remember when I was playing high school football, you know, yeah. there were, you know, our, there were coaches, a group of coaches that wanted our league to turn to a four downs. Like, what is that? Um, and, and they're all just fans of the NFL. I mean, it's, it's you know, but it, to me, it just slows the game down. Is it me or what? Well, if you're, I mean, if you're talking really young kids, I think that's a good idea because your quarterbacks, when you're eight, nine, ten years old, they can't throw a pass. Yeah. Uh, you know, occasionally, but you're not getting. You know, the ball's not moving very far down the field. So to give them the extra down to try and make something happen. But usually what that happens in pro football is it just means another grinding play, uh, you know, which slows the game down, and that sucks. Okay, so the guy loses a yard. He gets two. Whoop-de-doo. That's exciting. At least with three downs, you're more apt to toss it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why I say if you're really young, it it gives you an opportunity to, to run the offense and get kids some plays. But and once you get into high school and stuff, no, no, I'm, I'm, and from there on, I'm totally in favor of the three down game up here. Absolutely. So, do you think so? There's no chatter of four downs at all now. Well, we'll see. Right now, with this release, as I read it, there was no mention of it whatsoever. We'll see what happens. We'll see if some of these things. I mean, they've done a few other things that we're going to talk about today. There's other changes they've made to try and expand the offense and make the game more exciting. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, look, ultimately, um, all the changes in the future and anything else that gets discussed is all going to branch off of the idea of, is this an exciting game that people want to watch? And the Um, CFL, which always was the exciting offensive game, has fallen behind the NFL in that, so they've got some work to do to make themselves that again. So, you know, and, and I'm not like I'm against change or anything like that. or one of those old sticklers, keep it the way it is and, and what have you. But is this, is this what needs to be fixed with this league? Is this the problem? The game's not exciting? Is that yeah. the problem? Well, I mean, look, it, it, it can be exciting. 
uh, over the years, it's been far more exciting than the NFL. Here's what's happened. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, you know, to me, it's not like it's lacking. How do you make it more exciting? I don't know. Give them all cricket bats? Like, um... Well, here's what's happened with the CFL, and it's, it's, it's something that is unavoidable. The NFL has actually looked at the CFL and stolen some of its good ideas. And mm. so specifically things like once upon a time, if you were an NFL quarterback, you had a five-step or a seven-step drop, and you, went, you dropped back and you either handed the ball off or you sat in the pocket and threw it. And yeah. you had to be six foot five, and you had to be 220 pounds, yeah. and you had to have an arm like a cannon. Well, now look at the guys who are the star quarterbacks in the NFL. They're yeah. not all giants. They're very yeah. mobile. These are guys who probably 25 years ago would all be up here playing in Canada. So all of our best traditional CFL-style quarterbacks, from Patrick Mahomes to possibly Russell Wilson to, you know, go down your list, um, uh, what's his name in Baltimore, all the, those guys that would have been playing here that made the CFL game so exciting because they're running around and making stuff up on the fly, they're now staying down in the States. So the most important position in the game we up in Canada now are not getting the guys like the Doug Fluties. So like because the, the Americans are copying the great things out of the Canadian yeah, game, that means yeah, you change the game? Yeah. Uh, yes, and so you, so if, if they are stealing some of the ideas, which there's nothing wrong with yeah, that, everybody yeah, should yeah. be looking at someone and do what they're doing better. Sure. Yeah. You've got to make some stuff up to, to compensate, and they're trying to do it. Uh, thank you, Scott, as always. Have a great show tonight. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Dad and Dave for all of the help and you, of course, the good listenership. And now we turn it to Will Weber, who will read Frank's last word. Scott, I remember when the elder Trudeau called the War Measures Act. Is the Emergencies Act only compared as... Right church, wrong pew, Frank. 99! Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. (laughs) And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.